Well, these are strange times, aren't they, when markets respond positively to a falling consumer sentiment, which is what we saw on Friday after the weaker PMIs the day before. Bad news, it seems, is good news these days because it means less work for the central banks to do, which, it's hoped, will stop the world racing into a recession. Yet the Fed is still talking about supersized hikes, so who's right on that? And a price cap on Russian oil. That's the latest, greatest idea from the G7. What's all that about? It's Monday, the 27th of June, 2022. It's the morning call from NAB. Good morning. Uh, well, there was definitely a shift in attitude at the end of last week. It was a good week for U.S. equities generally, but Friday really capped it off with a 3% rise in the S&P 500, 3.4% for the Nasdaq, 2.7% for the Dow. Almost as good in Europe, we saw 2.8% up for the Eurostoxx 50 on Friday, 2.6% for the FTSE 100, 3.2% for the CAC 40, and in Asia too, the Hang Seng was uh, up 2%, for example. Friday also saw a quarter percent fall in the US dollar on the DXY, down half percent over the week and down 1.3% from that peak that we saw in the middle of the month. Against all of that, the Aussie gained 0.7% on Friday to just below 49.5 US cents, the Canadian dollar up 0.8%, the euro gaining 0.3%. But bonds, well, not doing much at the end of the week. Ten-year treasuries were up four basis points, but in Northern Europe, not much to speak of, just one basis point for 10-year buns, down one for 10-year gilts. But very different on the home front. Aussie 10-year yields down 13 basis points on Friday to 3.71%, quite away from the 4.2% that we saw in the middle of the month. Of course, uh, with optimism comes rising oil prices, a 3.2% rise in WTI on Friday, 2.8% for Brent, up over $113 again. So where next after all that? Here's Nab's Ray Atrell in Sydney. Um, so, of course, since all this optimism, Ray, on Friday, the Russians have sent rockets into residential buildings in Kiev, uh, as well as uh, pushing further in the Luhansk region. And uh, after taking over Severodonetsk, uh, the G7 has been meeting them. They've got more resolve, so possibly more sanctions, uh, which you know could be felt more on the global economy. So perhaps all that optimism that we saw to the end of last week could, could turn a bit today. Possibly, yeah. Good morning, Phil. But um, yes, just trying to get my head around what the G7 uh, are discussing here uh, with respect to trying to cap the prices that uh, that uh, the, the Russian oil exporters receive. So um, it looks a bit convoluted what's being suggested here. And, you know, it's, it, we're talking G7, not uh, the likes of, of China and India, who are the two biggest but aren't they, aren't, probably the two aren't biggest they, buyers of Russian oil if, at the moment. Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah, who does it cover? But aren't they saying if, we, if we're going to offer insurance for any ships leaving uh, with oil, then it's got to be oil that is below a price that we will determine. And I guess their hope is that that's going to mean less money going into Russia and containing the inflation effects of, of rising oil prices. But I think what you're trying to say is, well, is yeah, the G7, quite, what about China yeah. and India? <laughs> well, no, I mean, I mean, one of the issues there is that uh, most of the insurance for, for shipping globally, um, you know, comes out of G7 and, and, and the London market in particular. So, um, although I had thought that um, as part of the, um, you know, the Russian oil um, embargo planned to come in, in place, so part of the, the mechanism for sort of enforcing that was that, um, you know, Russian, um, you know, Russian ships were, were not going to be insurable, mm, effectively. Yeah. So, um, so I'm not quite sure how you reconcile these two. Is that um, back down? You know, these two proposals just at the moment. Yeah. But uh, as you said in your intro, I mean, the fact that, um, you know, Russia seems to be launching new attacks on the on the Ukraine capital it certainly looks provocative, doesn't mm. it, in, in front of that G7 meeting. So, um, 
you know, any sense of any sort of nit and rapprochement or whatever you want to call it looks, uh, you know, looks like a pipe dream. Well, it does. And the rhetoric coming out of the G7 is, is, you know, pretty much that we've all got to be committed to doing more to try and stop this happening. And uh, because otherwise, you know, where where does it end? But let's. um, So, yeah, we'll see how how that is reflected in the markets today. But the reason for the shift in sentiment at the end of last week, a lot of it was down to the University of Michigan Consumer Sentiment Index, wasn't it? And their inflation forecast. But was it a bit of an overreaction? Because the, the, I mean, the five-year expectation fell from 3.3% in the preliminary release, and then it was downgraded to 3.1%, uh, which you know is a, which is an improvement. But it's it's still up on May, of course, and you know, and that's five years away. So we're talking about having changed something from 3.3% to 3.1% in five years' time, and yet we had quite a strong reaction to all of that. An overreaction, surely? Um, possibly not. Actually, it would be my read, and for two reasons that I say that. One is that, um, <coughs> excuse me. Um, the rise that we had in the May reading from uh, 3.0% to 3.3% was explicitly cited by Fed Chair Powell in the uh, press conference that followed that decision to raise rates by 75 basis points earlier this month. Um, and um, Fed Chair Powell and, and former Fed Chair Janet Yellen before uh, before him have, have, have singled that out as one of the most sort of, you know, most looked at uh, measures of consumer inflation expectations. So, um, you know, the fact that, um, you know, the move from 3 to 3.3 was one of the factors, you know, determining the decision to, to move by the full 75 basis points, as well, obviously, as the upside CPI surprise the fact that it has come down um you know almost back from from where to, to where it was in may i think is of is certainly of some significance there and uh, it's bearing in mind that obviously the you know all the talk of, of global recession a hard landing really amped up didn't it between sort of the time of of, of that um, 75 basis point increase in the ensuing week so um you know maybe it is the you know the deepening um, awareness if you like of recession risks that has had a material impact in uh, in, in the sh- in the difference between the preliminary release and the final release where obviously people were surveyed late. So um, so I think it is, uh, you know, arguably a bit of an overreaction, but, um, you know, certainly, you know, I think a significant piece of economic news and, um, you know, the equity markets were already on the up. So often it can be that if something plays with the grain of the prevailing trends, then it can have a, an amplified effect in, in moving Is that because they're along. thinking, well, okay, they're not, they, they shouldn't have done the 75 because it wasn't that bad. They probably think now they should have done 50, so they'll almost certainly do 50 next time. Is that what people are thinking? Because Mary Daly spoken since then, saying, uh, Mary Daly from the Fed saying that, well, you know, we think still 75 basis, or she thinks 75 basis points for the next meeting, and then we'll see from from then on. I think James Bullard is still talking it up as well. So it's not like the, uh, the you know, the little bit we've heard since then from the Fed has, has their attitude doesn't seem to have shifted. No, I think the sort of, I think the broader point is it's not so much are they going to do 50 or 75 come the July meeting is that, is the peak necessarily going to be as high as we thought it was before, um, or given mm-hmm. the you know the deepening recession talk you know markets perhaps becoming a little bit more convicted that um you know fast forward a year and uh, and the fed may be you know actively looking uh, to ease rates if uh, obviously if, if the intervening inflation news you know proves to be encouraging so um so i think it's more about um you know our rates going to rise quite as as, as as fast or quite as high and um you know can we be more confident that um, that they are going to peak in the first half of next year so i think it's that more than the magnitude and uh, as you say Mary Daly pretty much nailed her colours to the mast, didn't she? Um, James Bullard was also out on a panel, um, including um, 
Phil Lowe that we can talk about in a second. And, uh, you know, he said he seems to be very much in this, we need to front load pikes. But um, he's been very deferential to the chair, though. So, you know, although we see him as the sort of arch hawk when it comes to the actual on the day. He's always said, look, I defer to the uh, to the chair in terms of the recommendation. But um, at the moment, I'd still say 75 basis points looks more likely than 50. But, um, you know, that doesn't sort of contradict the message that, uh, that markets are interpreting in terms of sort of where we get to eventually. Right. So bad news is good news then, it seems. You know, weaker data, it means that we are expecting less from the Fed, so or, or from any central bank, really. So it, it's good news. That's, that's the kind of logic, right? So fast forward, when we're having this conversation next week, or maybe tomorrow, <laughs> um, the narrative may be completely changed and equities are tanking because, you know, recession fears are seen to be a more bank nailed again. on well, than Absolutely, every moment. day is different, so, exactly. And who knows there's what no taste. But. There isn't. And, and the Michigan sentiment read, you know, the, aside from the inflation expectations the actual uh, read itself the top line read for consumer sentiment was the was the lowest on record 79 percent of consumers <laughs> expect to have a, a bad time of it this year the highest number since 2009 that's right but uh, i suppose the, the important thing there is you know as we say almost ad nausea is uh, you know watch what consumers do rather than what they say because mm. that university of michigan reading has been plumbing you know near record depths for uh, for several months now hasn't it and yet you know retail sales in, in particular in consumer spending Spending has held up reasonably well. Now, obviously, one way of reconciling that is to note that consumers are pretty, you know, are, are still pretty cashed up, or be the, you know, the distribution of that sort of excess savings, if you like, is 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 not necessarily skewed towards um, lower income earners. In fact, quite the opposite. So it doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be spent, but it certainly created a buffer between, um, you know, expectations, if you like, or sentiment and, and actual spending. But you know, over time, you would expect that uh, that gap to wither, wouldn't you? And, yeah. Um, as I say, that you know, if anything, you know, the numbers do confirm that the, the consumer, um, that the headwinds that the consumer is facing, particularly from food and energy prices, is uh, you know, is eventually going to show up in, in, in much reduced spending in, in, in other goods and services. Which, of course, it did in the UK. So retail sales we saw on Friday in the UK in May, um, a half percent fall month on month. Uh, and the bigger news was the the downward revision from the previous month as well, because May had actually been up, and that was a surprise, wasn't it? Up one point four percent, which had a you know big question mark on everybody, you know, why this this sudden turn in in spending habits, uh, but you know, question for good reason, because actually it was only up zero point four percent, not one. So they've dropped it a whole one percent, uh, and so that was completely wiped out with the figures that we that we saw last month as well. And you do in fact take out fuel, and it's zero point seven percent down month on month. So by this logic that we're talking about today. That's good news. I mean, consumption is down, therefore less work for the Bank of England to do. Well, that seems to be the logic. And certainly looking at the UK money markets, they certainly took out a few basis points of, uh, of tightening expectations. And remembering that it was the, the unexpected strength in the originally reported April retail sales numbers, you know, that prompted the market to think, well, the Bank of England was going to have to get uh, necessarily more hawkish if, if consumers were sort of holding up in the face of, um, you know, inflation at whatever it is, 9% and, uh, and, and like to be you know in double digits in the next uh, in the next few months or certainly come October when the latest off gem price cap on uh, on utilities actually is lifted so um, um, so in that sense a little bit of significance but yes it plays with that grain doesn't it of uh, you know bad news is, is is good news from a central bank point of view and uh, at the moment at least risk markets seem to be uh, feeding off that narrative. yeah now you mentioned Philip Lowe because he was uh, in Zurich on the same panel as James Bullard uh, Philip Lowe from the RBA of course uh, so he was talking about how inflation this time is different because it is acceptable now for companies to lift prices you know we we understand why they're lifting prices and so they're happy to do it 
uh, without getting a consumer backlash. So, uh, uh, t- so d- d- does that mean then that you know if that's you know that that creates a, a bigger challenge for the RBA? So we could see a more aggressive path by the RBA. Well, it's, a- it's almost the opposite of what we've been talking about. Yeah, well, it's certainly possible. I mean, uh, Dr. Lowe talked about there being only a narrow path to curbing inflation um, without triggering economic downturn. <clears throat> excuse me. Um, you know, and warning that if, if workers and businesses don't believe that the RBA could chart that credible path back to its inflation target, then they may get stuck in what he called a higher inflationary mindset. Um, you know, and that's really the, you know, so he's certainly alive to that, uh, to that risk there. And again, it sort of plays to the role of, of expectations, doesn't it? If, uh, you know, if companies are able to pass on prices and consumers are accepting of them or indeed expecting more down the track, then, um, you know, that is the so-called sort of second round effects, if you like, certainly if it feeds through into, into wages. And, um, you know, obviously we've had the, you know, the minimum wage increase handed down, which, you know, to my mind, doesn't you know doesn't bake higher inflation and expectations in the in the cake because it's simply reflecting you know past rises in inflation and we know inflation is going to get uh, higher than the what was it the five point two percent you know minimum wage increase um, you know Phil Lowe himself saying that he thought it would be up to to seven percent in the second half of the year but um, anyway but at, uh, you know a bit, a bit of honesty I think there from uh, from Dr Lowe certainly talking about the you know the narrow path in terms of uh, you know of landing the economy and that obviously is as a key global issue not just one that's unique to no, australia but it, i mean it is a sign isn't it, the rba having to take it more seriously than they were perhaps uh, three months ago isn't it so certainly the, yes uh, and the the aussie uh on friday doing well because of the weaker u.s dollar but the aussie is somewhat subdued lately isn't it so how much of that relates to this narrowing spread we've got between aussie 10 years and and treasuries in the u uh, the u.s because a, a week ago aussie yields were 4.14 percent which is 90 basis points higher than the u.s on friday that had dropped down to uh, below 60 basis points so is that impacting the uh, the cost between the u.s and aussie dollar i think it, it the margin i think it's having a, an influence obviously you know if you, if you talk mm-hmm. about the you know the currency and the determinants of it we talk about commodity prices we talk about risk sentiment we talk about uh, interest rate differentials and we usually say that you know the influence of of, of rate differentials you know tends to sort of rank third relative to you know the terms of trade and uh, and risk sentiment, but the size of the yield compression um, that, to our credit, our rate strategists have been have been saying that uh, you know, we, we're ripe for. You know, I think it's, it's big enough. I think to have had an influence at the margin, at least anyway. And then you know, also you know, we talk about you know, oil prices had a had a decent recovery, which, as you said in your intro, is probably just you know, nothing more than that. You know, sentiment has improved somewhat, hasn't it? And and that normally is a, it's a risk sensitive uh, asset, if you want to call it that. Um, so, but over the week, you know, commodity prices. We're off about three percent on average. If I look at something like the CRB index, um, iron ore obviously has been deflating for a while, and it was off, you know, two and a half, three percent last week as well. So, um, so I think there's a couple of headwinds there that have probably played against the grain of risk sentiment, which has been the primary, certainly the primary driver of the strength that we saw on on Friday. But look at it over the week, and and, and Aussie was by no means the kind of outperformer that you would typically expect. Um, you know, when equity markets have come back as well as they have over the course of the week. Well, of course, those uh, oil prices could be completely subdued once the uh, G7 price cap on Russian oil kicks in, he said uh, 
somewhat uh, disbelievingly. Uh, and Russia's, uh, what does it matter about this uh, d- default on its debts uh, from May, which is going to happen in the next few hours? Does that matter? I mean, it's, it's no surprise, is it? Well, I'm assuming that it's pretty, pretty much discounted. I can't believe anybody mm. is holding Russian debt <laughs> in the confident expectation that Russia is, uh, you know, is not going to be in technical up. default. So uh, I think that one yeah. probably goes straight, well, through the, straight through to the keeper. Yeah. All right. Now, today, durable goods orders for the United States uh, up 0.4% in April. Uh, and we've got uh, pending home sales as well. We've got the Dallas Fed Manufacturing Index for June as well, which fell 7.3% in May. So out of that, anything to say? And also the ECB forum kicking off in uh, in Sintra as well in, in, in Portugal, uh, Monday night their time. But uh, I think Monday night's just a couple of professors talking while they all have dinner. So it's Tuesday, really, before we, we, we get to hear much from the central bankers. And it's Wednesday, really, before they get on to talking about inflation and policy decisions. So we're possibly not going to get much out of that. But of the other stuff today, uh, you know, what, what will you be looking out for? Well, I think probably durable goods orders is, is the one to watch, at least. Obviously, we had those, you know, much weaker than expected um, you know, PMI numbers from Europe and the US, um, you know, out last week in the US, we're always more interested in the, the more established ISM surveys. But, um, you know, durable goods orders certainly is, uh, you know, is going to be one focus at least. But, um, you know, I think most of the you know, the events that we're looking for is to certainly later in the week, as you say, that central forum, um, forum has all the, the great and the good of the central banking world all popping up at, at various points. And I think uh, the other thing I'm keenly interested in is the China PMIs, which, which kick off on Thursday, mm-hmm. I think, with the official ones and then the, the Kaisin ones on Friday. You know, and to what extent, you know, China is bucking the trend of weakness elsewhere, given reopening. And there are a few positive signs there. I think that the Shanghai case numbers were zero on Friday and Beijing just two. Beijing's announced plans to reopen in-class school teaching for as early as today, I think. So, um, you know, I think, you know, on, on the other side of we're talking about the sort of G7 and, and, and you know, renewed bombing of, of Kiev, etc. Then, um, you know, harder evidence of, of China reopening, I think, it certainly has the potential to, mm. uh, to work in a risk supportive fashion. Yeah, getting supply up, that would be good, wouldn't it? Because otherwise, I'm confused. If durable goods orders are are down, is that good or bad news today <laughs> from the United States? Well, if we're in bad news is good, then, uh, you know, go figure. But, uh, let's see. <laughs> Confusing times, aren't they? All right, good to talk, Ray. We'll catch you again very soon. Thanks. Well, thanks, Phil. Once again, clear as mud. That's it for the morning call for this Monday morning. I'm Phil Dobby for NAB. Back again tomorrow morning. See you then. Have a great day.